Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Hello, and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, your host, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Aaron Brake and Nathan Apodaca. Hey guys, great to be with you. Yes, yeah, good to be back, thanks. It's great to have you guys with us. Now, we're advocates and voices for the unborn with Life Training Institute, whose mission is to equip pro-life advocates to graciously and persuasively defend their pro-life views in the marketplace of ideas and in our culture. We believe in the radical idea that it's wrong to kill innocent human beings, whether born or unborn, and we're here to equip you to defend that idea in a culture that celebrates a woman's right to choose. Today we're going to be talking about the SLED test. What's the SLED test? Well, stay tuned, and we'll cover that. So today we're going to talk about how differences in size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency do not justify killing the unborn. And then we're going to talk about what it is that actually makes us valuable. Just to build on what Clinton just said, as we discussed on the show, well, really the last two weeks, we need to be sure to use the disciplines that are relevant or to, excuse me, discussing the nature of living beings in the embryonic and fetal stages of life, or really at any stage of life in order to be able to correctly answer the question, what kind of thing is the unborn? So in the last two weeks, we used the science of embryology to make the case that from the earliest stages of biological development, everybody who is currently listening to this podcast and every human being on earth was a distinct living and whole member of the human family and has been so since they were at the beginning of their life. And we made the case that they were a member of the human family from the moment they were conceived. So every member of our listening audience was distinct and that they already possessed their own unique identity and were already separate from their mothers as in terms of a biological organism. They were a separate biological organism and a separate human being from their mothers. They were living and that they were growing and changing in ways that would lead to their maturity and they were whole and that they already possessed everything necessary to grow and develop as human beings later in life from their appearance to their biological sex to even the diseases that may affect them later in life. And in turn, what many people think of as objections to the biological case that we presented, and we talked about last week some of those objections, actually happen to fall into the category of the philosophical. 
philosophical question related to abortion is whether or not all human beings deserve to be treated in a particular way. And so Stephen Schwartz, the moral question of abortion, he coined this SLED acronym that Clinton just mentioned as a way for pro-life advocates to summarize the chief philosophical objections that are raised when the pro-life point of view is made known. And it is very helpful to memorize these and be able to articulate them in a simple but persuasive way. So when in, question, in conversations with people about the abortion issue, something that is helpful to do when any difference between a born human being and an unborn human being is mentioned is to simply ask, well, why does that difference matter? It is one thing to simply assert that some difference between two human beings is relevant enough to determine which humans may live and which may die. However, it is quite another thing to actually provide a good reason to accept that view that only certain human beings are deserving of human rights. And it must, I say again, must be established why any physical difference between two human beings is a good justification to kill one, but to protect another just at any other stage of life. And really few, if any, pro-choice thinkers have been able to do this. Quite a few have tried, but really their arguments don't really succeed in this regard. Again, the sled test was created by Stephen Schwartz in his book, The Moral Question of Abortion. Now, I'm guessing Schwartz doesn't live in Fresno, California with our triple degree heat. Otherwise, his acronym would have been something like heat or burn. SLED is an acronym that stands for size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. The idea behind this argument is that while there are differences between an embryo and an adult, none of these differences justifies killing the embryo. It's the distinction between qualitative differences and quantitative differences which is an important distinction often overlooked in the abortion issue and tends to obfuscate the matter. To say that two things are qualitatively identical is to say that they have properties in common. So I am qualitatively different than an embryo. I'm older, I'm bigger, I'm more developed, etc. But I am quantitatively identical to the embryo that was conceived in my mother's womb in 1980. That means that despite the differences between me and that embryo, I have retained my identity through all points in time, and all of the physical parts of that embryo eventually developed into me. So the four differences in the sled test might be qualitative differences between an embryo and an adult, but none of these differences change the nature of the individual into something that is non-human or a non-person into something that is. Now, it's also important to realize that the SLED test is not an argument that personhood begins at fertilization. It just doesn't make that case. So this is not a positive argument for the pro-life position. It is a negative argument, an argument that responds to abortion choice arguments regarding why they believe unborn humans are not persons. One more important note needs to be made. When we talk about value in these next four points, we're speaking of intrinsic value. Something that is intrinsically valuable is valuable in and of itself. We are not speaking of extrinsic value, in which the value comes from outside itself. So when we say, for example, that it is just as wrong to kill a toddler as it is to kill an adult, we are speaking in terms of violation of a right to life. It might be worse to kill an adult because of instrumental reasons, such as the fact that she may have kids who depend on her, obligations she has to fulfill, etc. In that sense, the sense of instrumental value, it is more wrong to kill an adult than a toddler. But strictly in terms of violation of a right to life, if toddlers are full human beings, then it is just as wrong as regards violation of a right to life to kill them as it is to kill adults. So let's jump into this 
SPLIT acronym, then the first letter in the acronym is S, which stands for size. Now, it's true that the unborn are smaller than newborns and adults, but why is that relevant? Is it our size that gives us value or a right to life? Men are generally larger than women. Does that mean that men possess more value or a greater right to life than women do? I think we can understand that size does not equal value. In fact, this is something even my children understand. If you've seen the, the Dr. Seuss movie Horton Hears a Who, there's a, a line that's repeated throughout that movie, and the line is, a person is a person no matter how small. Yeah, and you know, just kind of like what Aaron said, and just for the listening audience, we'll give a couple of other ways with a couple of these acronyms to think about these. And so a question I like to ask people who bring up size as the relevant factor is, well, how big did I need to grow before my life had any value at all? And so if you think about um, the recent uh, series of Marvel superhero movies, uh, maybe many of our listening audience saw the movie Ant-Man or Captain America Civil War. And so in the movie Ant-Man, the character, Scott Lang, stumbled upon a suit, a technologically advanced super suit, that could make him shrink down to only a few millimeters in size, in fact, even microscopic sizes. And so if you think about it this way, if we had the capability to do that in our world today, and I was able to shrink down to the size of an ant, but I suddenly lose my status as a bearer of human rights. So in the film, Scott still maintained his status as a valuable human being and as a bearer of human rights, even when he shrunk down to microscopic sizes. In fact, you actually see that in, throughout the film when he shrinks down to those sizes, people are still concerned for his well-being. Even though he's very small or even hard to see, his friends and family still think of him as a valuable human being. The second letter in the SLED acronym is L, which stands for level of development. Again, it's true that the unborn are less developed than you and I, but why is this relevant? Newborns are less developed than toddlers. Toddlers are less developed than adolescents and adolescents are less developed than adults. If our value is based on development, does that mean it is worse to kill an adult than a newborn? If our value or our right to life is based on development, then there's nothing to prevent the strong from killing the weak. In fact, isn't it true that those members of the human community who are less developed and thereby weaker and more defenseless are also those who are more needful and worthy of our protection? Isn't this why we are so horrified by the nature of crimes against children? We realize that children need to be protected and not exploited. And if little children need our protection all the more, why not the unborn even more so? After L comes E in the acronym, which stands for environment. It's true that the unborn are inside the mother's womb. But again, we ask the question, why is that relevant? Where you are has no bearing on who you are. Each one of us changes our location every day. Do we somehow become more or less valuable or human? How is it that an eight-inch journey down the birth canal can change the nature of the unborn from non-human to human? There's nothing magical or mysterious about the birthing process that grants us value or a right to life. If the unborn are not already human, merely changing their location can't make them valuable. It should also be noted that as we're recording this podcast right now, Aaron, Clinton, and myself are all separated by a distance of literally hundreds of miles throughout the state of California. And so if it makes no sense to argue that one of the three of us is more or less than human because of the particular location we are currently existing inside the borders of California, if a distance of hundreds of miles doesn't determine our humanity, then traveling a distance of a few inches shouldn't matter either. 
Exactly right. Our fourth letter is D, degree of dependency. It's true that the unborn are dependent on their mothers. But why is that relevant? Newborns may be dependent on their mothers as well. Does that mean we can kill them? What about adults who are dependent on insulin or kidney dialysis? Are they somehow less human or less valuable because of their dependency? While it is true we, we may be dependent on others for our survival, we are not dependent on others for our value. And, you know, something else that I will usually ask people, especially when I'm doing campus outreach, whether it's at the university or a community college or wherever, is in regarding dependency, well, how independent does somebody need to be before it becomes wrong for us to kill them? I mean, suppose, for example, and I believe it's uh, Dr. Bernard Nathanson who gives this analogy, that a woman gives birth to a child who can only survive on her breast milk as baby formula is not readily available. Now, because that child depends solely on his mother for survival as of right now, well, does that mother have a moral right to be able to starve her child to death since that child, again, depends totally on her mother for her survival? I think many, if not all of us, would consider that mother a moral monster for doing that. But if it is wrong for her to kill her very dependent newborn, why would it have been permissible, in fact, even a legal and morally just thing to do, to end the life of her child, listen, the very same baby girl, when she was far more dependent on her mother for her immediate survival earlier in pregnancy. And so this is where the typical argument for viability or likelihood to survive outside the womb falls apart. In fact, this is mentioned in Roe versus Wade and a lot of lay-level pro-choice literature brings up the viability argument. And so criminologist and pro-life advocate Dr. Mike Adams gives an interesting thought experiment in response to this. He says, suppose we have a woman who is 24 weeks pregnant, which is about the current level of viability in the Western world. By the way, viability meaning we have the medical technology available to sustain that child if the woman gives birth at 24 weeks. So this woman is 24 weeks pregnant in the United States, say in La Jolla and San Diego, and she decides to go on a mission trip to an underdeveloped nation, such as, say, Nepal or Chile or Haiti, where the standard of viability is probably between 36 and 40 weeks. So at 36 or 40 weeks, the child might survive if she gives birth at that time. So why should any reasonable person accept that it would be morally wrong to purposely kill her child who is viable currently, currently viable in the United States and really is viable until her mother's plane leaves the tarmac, say at San Diego International or LAX, but it would be also perfectly acceptable for her child to be killed when the plane lands in Haiti or Nepal. So the child would go from being a person in San Diego at 24 weeks to being a non-person in Haiti while she's 24 weeks pregnant, back to being a person again when the plane lands again in the United States. Viability is not a measure of personhood, it's a measure of our current medical technology. As a matter of fact, Joseph De La Pena wrote a book called Dispelling the Myths of Abortion History. Now, it's a pretty pricey book. I was able to justify the price because, number one, I'm actually doing work in the pro-life movement. It's, it's my vocation. But number two, I was also getting paid for writing articles for a blog, and so I was able to justify the price on, on those grounds. If someone's listening to this, this podcast and is not planning on making a career out of being a pro-life speaker, then they might not be able to justify the cost of this book as it is pretty pricey. But I would encourage anyone who can get their hands on it to, to read through it, um, you know, if you can get it at the library or, or something, because it's an excellent book. And Joseph De La Pena is not a pro-life advocate. He's an abortion choice person. 
who wrote this book to to dispel some of the myths some of the myths that abortion choice people believe. And so he can't be dismissed as just a, a pro-life person because he believes that abortion is permissible up to a certain point. Now, De La Pena talks about a particular fallacy in the abortion issue, which he calls abortion distortion. And he defines that as a kind of doublethink involving giving words special meanings in the context of abortion to justify the political outcome of one's choice. The term viability is one such distortion. To the medical field, viability is not the ability to survive outside the womb. According to Tabor's Cyclopedic Medical Dictionary, viability is simply the ability to live, grow, and develop. So medically, any embryo that implants in the womb is viable. Additionally, one bizarre argument that abortion choice people sometimes make regarding the degree of dependency point is that a woman has the right to abort because the child is completely dependent on her for his survival. After birth, anyone can take care of the child, so no one has the right then to kill it. Now, this argument assumes that the more of a burden you are, the more valuable as a person you are. But of course, this is counterintuitive. In fact, we all intuitively understand that the more dependent you are, the more of an obligation we have to help. To that end, former Executive Director of Justice for All, David Lee, composed the following thought experiment. Suppose you're getting out of a public pool and you think you're alone. But you hear a splash at the deep end. You look into the water and find a toddler has fallen in and is drowning. That toddler is now completely dependent on you for his survival. Assuming it can swim, are you morally permitted to walk away? Of course not. You have a greater obligation to save that child's life because you're the only one in the vicinity that can do so. The pregnant woman, not despite, but because of the child's complete dependence on her, has a moral obligation to continue the pregnancy and allow the child to live and thrive. So after looking at the SLED acronym, if our value is not based on size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency, the question is, what is it that makes us valuable? I know we'll talk about this on future episodes, but in short, pro-life advocates argue that each of us as human beings are equal by nature, not by function. In other words, each one of us is valuable simply in light of what we are, human beings who share a common human nature. We are not valuable based on some function we can perform. But if that is the case, if our value is not based on function, but we are equal by nature, then the unborn are included as well as valuable members of the human community, since they too share our common human nature. Scott Klusendorf points out in his book, The Case for Life, opponents of the pro-life view assert without justification that strong and independent humans have basic human rights while small and dependent ones do not. This view is elitist. It violates the principle that once made political liberalism great, a commitment to protect the most vulnerable members of the human community. Now, pro-life advocates, on the other, other hand, argue that no human being, regardless of size, level of development, environment, or degree of dependency, should be excluded from the human family. In other words, our view of humanity is inclusive and wide open to all, especially to those who are small, vulnerable, and defenseless. Now, something I like to talk about when I give pro-life talks is Abraham Lincoln and his addressing of several pro-slavery choice arguments. On July 1st, 1854, Lincoln wrote this small fragment to address some of those popular arguments put forward by pro-slavery choice advocates 
who argued that whites should have the right to enslave blacks based on superficial qualities and characteristics such as color and intellect. And I think we can learn a lot from Lincoln's logic on how he demonstrates the bankruptcy of certain pro-slavery choice arguments. So Lincoln wrote this. He said, you say A is white and B is black. It is color then, the lighter having the right to enslave the darker. Take care. By this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with a fairer skin than your own. You do not mean color exactly. You mean the whites are intellectually the superior of the blacks and therefore have the right to enslave them? Take care again. By this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own. But say you, it is a question of interest. And if you can make it your interest, you have the right to enslave another. Very well. And if he can make it his interest, he has the right to enslave you. Lincoln's point is this. If you try to establish human rights or human value or personhood by appealing to a set of arbitrary, degreed properties which carry no moral weight or significance, properties such as color and intellect, which none of us share equally, then what you end up doing is undermining human rights and value for everyone. Well, what pro-slavery choice advocates did in the past, pro-abortion choice advocates do today, only instead of arguing that blacks are non-persons based on color and intellect and can therefore be enslaved, pro-abortion choice advocates argue the unborn are non-persons based on size, development, and dependency and can therefore be killed. So as I mentioned earlier, it is not nearly sufficient enough to simply highlight a difference between two human beings and then to assert that that difference is relevant. After all, if those who argue that skin color and intellect determine how we should treat people, and they were wrong, why is it that those who assert that any other difference between two human beings are correct in their view of human personhood and on who gets to count as a person? As Chris Kayser has pointed out, in the past when this question has been asked, virtually always the advocates of a limited and exclusive view of who counts as human persons got the answer to the question wrong. So, and I will pose this question to people sometimes. I will say, why were the racists and eugenicists of the past wrong? But when those who advocate for the non-moral status of certain human beings based on size, level of development, where they are located, or how dependent they are on us, why are we right on that? I'm not convinced that we got it right when we exclude certain human beings based on those standards. That's a great question. And going back to the analogy between pro-slavery choice and pro-abortion choice, the reasoning of pro-abortion choice advocates today is just as flawed as that of the pro-slavery choice advocates then. So if Lincoln were alive today and were to address the current abortion debate using the same logic he did then, uh, he might say something like this. You say A is big and B is small. It is size then, the larger having the right to kill the smaller? Take care. By this rule, you are to be a victim to the first man you meet with a larger body than your own. You do not mean size exactly. You mean human persons are developmentally the superiors of the unborn and therefore have the right to kill them? Take care again. By this rule, you are to be a victim to the first man you meet with a development superior to your own. But say you, it is a question of interest. And if you can make it your interest, you have the right to kill the unborn. Very well. And if another can make it his interest, he has the right to kill you. Scott Klusendorf, again in his book, The Kids for Life, states, in the past, we used to discriminate on the basis of skin color and gender, and still do at times. But now, with elective abortion, we discriminate on the basis of size, 
level of development, location, and degree of dependency. We've simply swapped one form of bigotry for another. That's a great point. Our friend Steve Wagner, the current executive director of Justice for All, who we were working with a few weeks ago, he offers a very helpful way for us to think more clearly about the issue of human equality. He says something like this. As you look around the room tonight, and he's speaking to uh, large crowds, he'll ask, what makes is it that makes all of us deserving of equal treatment and possessors of the same basic rights? Each one of us in this room is different. We are different races and sexes, we possess different abilities and functions, and we have different beliefs and convictions. So what is it? If each of us is to be treated equally and we all possess the same basic human rights, there has to be some quality or characteristic we all share equally in common. So what is it then? There is only one quality we all have equally. We're all human. And being human is not a degreed property. It's not something you are more or less of. You are either human or you aren't. We all have a human nature and we all have it equally. But if that's the case, if it is our humanity that grounds our equality and value and rights, then the unborn are included as well as equal and valuable members of the human community, as well as possessors of basic rights from the moment they come into existence, which is at conception. And Stephen goes on to ask, so why are sexism and racism wrong? Isn't it because they pick out a surface difference, which would be gender or skin color, and ignore the underlying similarity all of us share? We should treat women and men, African-Americans and white, unjust discrimination. Why? Because they all have a human nature. But if the unborn also has that same human nature, shouldn't we protect her as well? And a few weeks ago, when we were talking about the science, I mentioned Steve Wagner's 10-second pro-life apologist, where he asks three questions. First question is, if something is growing, isn't it alive? After all, dead things don't grow. The second question is, if a living thing or a living being was produced by human parents, isn't that living thing a human being? And the third question Stephen will ask, and this is where the SLED test comes in handy, is shouldn't all human beings have human rights? And when someone says no, they need to explain why some human beings shouldn't have human rights. And as we've shown, none of the differences between the adults we are now and the unborn humans we once were would have justified killing us then, but not now. Okay, so we talked about then the four main points of the SLED test. We talked about the differences in size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency, which do not justify killing the unborn. And then we talked a little bit about what makes us valuable. So once again, we'd like to thank you for listening to our podcast. I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Nathan and Aaron, for joining me. If you, uh, if you like what we're talking about, if you appreciate the content of this podcast episode, then we would just ask you to share it around. Uh, feel free to rate and review it. Now, we have a couple of upcoming events. Uh, myself, personally, I'm going to be debating on whether or not we have a right to die with Matt Dillahunty, an atheist internet personality. And that's going to be on Friday, September 8th at the Bible and Beer Consortium in Dallas, Texas at either 6 or 7 p.m. He hasn't given me the specific time just yet, but it will be at either one of those. And obviously, that's local time to Dallas. Uh, Nathan also has something coming up here. Yeah, um... I'm really excited for this. I'm going to be teaching a pro-life apologetics course in Poway, California at the Life Choices Pregnancy Resource Center. Uh, my good friend Liz is the president of that organization. Her and I are going to be teaching this class together. And it'll be three different dates. It'll be on July 13th, July 20th, and July 27th. I think it'll be about 6.30 or 7 p.m. And there will be free food. 
and we're going to do three different classes. The first one will be the case for life, when we'll talk about what we've been discussing for the last few weeks on the podcast. Uh, the second week is going to be pro-lifers answer objections persuasively, Scott Klusenberg versus Nadine Strawson at Wayne State University. And we're going to be watching and discussing her debate with Scott and basically watching how pro-lifers can answer objections both persuasively but compassionately at the same time. And I think Scott gives a really good example of that. And then lastly, me and Liz are going to tag team and discuss answering the tough questions. So the bodily autonomy arguments and the hard cases, so rape, incest, and a life-threatening pregnancy. So well, I'll have more information on that. If you're interested in joining, feel free to message me on Facebook, and I'd be happy to get back to you and give you more information on that. Now, this is a weekly podcast, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. Now, I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com and click on Donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And if you'd like to donate to the podcast specifically, you can include that in the notes section also. Donations are also tax deductible. So next week, we're going to be joined by a very special guest, Patty Smith of, this, of the Silent No More Awareness Campaign. And we're going to be talking to her about how to find healing after you have an abortion. Now, on behalf of Nathan, Aaron, and myself, I'd like to thank you again for listening, and we will see you next time. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.